Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast, where we dive deep into the topics of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, mindfulness, and functional medicine with the goal of helping you understand that there's always hope and your brain is not broken. I'm your host, Drew Perot, and each week, my team and I bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. Today's guest is Dr. David Hazi. Dr. Hazi is a leading educator and innovator in the emerging field of personalized systems medicine. He graduated from Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and completed his medical residency at the Mayo Clinic, where despite the undeniable brilliance and dedication of the doctors around him, he saw countless instances of patients getting better, not because of medical advances, but in spite of them, which we're going to talk about all about in this interview. After years of turbulent reflection, Dr. Hazi founded the Maxwell Clinic with the express goal to better understand and enable the human body's miraculous ability to create health. Working with patients using highly personalized data-driven methods gave him decades worth of expertise to share with other doctors around the world. The team at Maxwell Clinic led by Dr. Hazi, treats a wide range of conditions and special expertise in neurodegenerative and other brain-related challenges, fatigue, and other conditions caused by mitochondrial, inflammatory, and immune dysregulation. Dr. Hazi teaches internationally and is faculty for the Institute of Functional Medicine, chair of the Medical Advisory Board for Zymogen, a consultant for Metabolome, Illumina, as well as multiple laboratory and neuroscience companies. And he's also a leading pioneer in the emerging field of regenerative plasma phoresis. Dr. Hazi, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Oh, Drew, thank you very much for having me. It's a delight to be here. At your presentation at the uh, annual conference for the Institute of Functional Medicine, you shared a story about a patient of yours I believe her name was Alicia, and uh, you talked about her story as an example of both this growing epidemic that we're dealing with of uh, stress and pain, as as well as how the functional medicine model and your approach can lead to uh, solutions. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about uh, her story with our audience here? Oh, I'd love to, and Alicia would love it too. Uh, Elisa is just, I've, I've had the privilege of getting to be her doctor for over 15 years. She came to me with uh, severe body-wide pain. She had recently been recognized to have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Uh, she had been on very high doses of narcotics for a very long period of time, which uh, a daily morphine equivalent of over 500 just to get through the day. And that's a lot of drugs. <laughs> so, uh, you know, she was barely able to leave the house after high school graduation. She wasn't able to go into college because she had so much pain with movement. I mean, her joints were so lax that she can have spontaneous hip dislocations just sleeping at night with huge surges of pain. Um, this led to being inactive and obesity came after this. Um, it was quite a downward spiral. And it was just really great to be able to step back and say, wow, you know, everything was blamed on the, the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. That's the problem. And there is not a single solution for that. We don't have a drug for it. We don't have a, an intervention to do. And the best uh, that medicine had been able to do at that point was just to suppress the symptoms of pain. 
and and she's a remarkably psychologically healthy and positive individual. And uh, she, uh, so we started to ask, well, what could be the underlying causes? And she was quite uh, challenged with changing. So it took us almost a, a year to wean down her, wean down her Coca-Cola habit. Uh, we started dec- improving her diet, finally got off raw gluten after another couple of years, addressed underlying infections, uh, recognized that she had uh, problems with regard to uh, how she was active. So we addressed her structural concerns. And, you know, she's uh, was able to come down nearly 100 pounds. Uh, she was able to go to college, uh, finally becoming a PhD a psychologist, now being a teacher of others, uh, you know, engaging in just an incredible amount of wisdom. And, and, and it was simple things that were important, but it, it was to recognize that this disease is not a disease unto itself, but rather it is a, a, the problem of the upstream, all the multiple causations of which we can have influence over um, not being addressed. So as we address those issues, uh, she became more free and, and it ended up being able to uh, become married. And uh, well, along with that marriage came some children. And, and then along with those, those children, one of them happened to have also get caught in the opioid epidemic uh, as a person selling drugs and, and entering into, you know, so here she was an individual that had, you know, been able to drastically decrease her own opioid use. Uh, and then also having to now grapple with the fact that the, this new family members of hers that were, were you know, becoming incarcerated and uh, were going down a spiral caught by the social upstream causes of the community. And to have to feel the ravages of the opioid epidemic from yet another side. So it, it was an opportunity to really engage and be deep inside someone's life and, and recognize that this multiple causation is, is something that is as different as each one of our paths in life. And, and to feel deeply the, the, you know, the pain that opioids can bring. And uh, so, yes, it was, as, and I think what's important about this, all of us, I am not an addiction medicine specialist, but I will tell you that I, I deal with addiction, pain, and stress with every patient, almost every patient that comes in our door because there's such common uh, components. And almost every physician that is practicing, if they're honest, uh, recognize that pain and stress and, and likely some component of addiction is part of most of their patients' pathways. And it affects them with a great opportunity for healing and a great challenge if we don't address this both on an individual and societal level. Now, the medicine that you practice of functional medicine is systems medicine. So when you think of Alicia and what she was going through and the challenges that were there, uh, Doctors like yourself are trained to look at her body as kind of these core systems that are being affected by different influences that that might be out there. So in her example, this pain that she was dealing with and the stress that was that she was dealing with, what were a few systems 
that you're paying attention to that are part of that upstream approach. Hey, these core systems are being affected, so let's focus on them and they in likelihood will then affect other aspects of of what her uh, body or organs are are the challenges they're dealing with. You bet. What a great question. You know, the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a problem of connective tissue and uh, our immune system uh, has a deep relationship with our connective tissue in that, or our, we should say our connective tissue is part of our immune system uh, because it is, it comprises our barrier. It keeps out, uh, our skin keeps out bacteria, um, the barrier of the uh, basement membrane of our GI tract keeps out bacteria. Uh, you know, it is that border that protects us from being overwhelmed by outside toxins, infections, and allergens. And Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, these individuals have weak connective tissue. And so uh, a, a very strong emphasis was we placed upon how do we heal her barrier? She had an immense leaky gut, very high levels of intestinal permeability. Um, and, and that was over and above what would be typical for an individual that didn't have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So we, you know, uh, so we took great care in understanding what was going on in her GI tract, in her sinuses, uh, and then augmenting her immune system so that she was able to have a, a better primary defense. We used a lot of oral immunoglobulins, which uh, helped to uh, support the, uh, the body's ability to hold back um, the bacteria from invading in the first place. Uh, and then also recognizing that there's certain nutrients, certainly orthostabilized silic acid, uh, that can help improve collagen production and an collagen uh, organization. So uh, those things together with removing the influences of, of in localized inflammation uh, helped tremendously. We also recognized she had a very high infectious load body-wide um, and uh, that required antimicrobial therapies um, and then uh, you know and the, and the, and it goes on you know we're recently been getting new data um, around her uh, uh, around her whole genome analysis recognizing what contributes uniquely to her particular uh, connective tissue disease and, and how can we more uniquely address that? So I'll have some updates for you later. Uh, we have some early wins, which I'm really excited about, but uh, hesitant to speak about yet uh, that, uh, you know, because I, I like data. I never want to, uh, uh, to be too excited. You know, I think one of the challenges about uh, systems medicine is it, it's hard to know when one single intervention makes a difference. Because how do we know that this one new intervention has you know, helped her dramatically? How, did, how do we know that that worked when in, how do we know that it wouldn't have worked if we hadn't done all the work leading up to this point? And that's this beautiful place of being able to take people where they are, listen to their story, um, recognize that everything we do in life is uh, with regard to our health is an experiment of one 
and run a wholesome experiment. And then to take the outcome of that experiment in a way that gives us new information to yet run the next best experiment in health and life. So it's beautiful. Now, stress, pain, and addiction, to quote you earlier, you were saying that there's not one patient that I see that's not dealing with at least one of those and sometimes multiple or all three. I'd love to zoom out for a second because that those were the themes of this year's uh, Institute of Functional Medicine Conference and start off by kind of pointing out two things. I think for a lot of individuals, um, stress, pain, and addiction are things that either can happen uh, through an event that happens in their life of some sort of uh, trauma that can lead to that. Or for a lot of people, I would say more individuals, it's a slow buildup that ultimately manifests as one of these primary components. One of the things you talk about is that all three of these items are related. They're related and they can influence one another. So can you share with us how are these items related? How are stress, pain, and addiction? What is some of the interplay uh, that you see as a functional medicine doctor? Yeah, again, another great question. I thought that the Institute for Functional Medicine did an amazing job of choosing this year's theme. It was very brave to have a conference on stress, pain, and addiction. It was brave for many reasons. Number one, those conditions strike fear into the heart of most every clinician. I mean, if not fear, at least some level of pushback. Because when we are engaging patients that have have pain, stress, and addiction, they are emotionally and energetically draining to some degree. It takes a lot of internal self-regulation to be able to dive into these problems and to be there for those patients on a regular basis. So I actually think that um, there are people who are going to hear this recording and get the recordings from Institute of Functional Medicine uh, when they and when they have that self-talk about, well, are these did I not go to the conference because these problems were a bit too challenging for me to psychically deal with and I had some pushback. Um, so I thought it was really brave of them to take on this topic in the first place. And, and, and secondly, there's no better place, I think, to address a topic, pain, stress, and addiction than in, a, in an organization that, ba- function, that organizes all their information in a systems manner. Because uh, if we think uh, about, it, it, say, an acute injury, you know, one of the major ways that people are introduced to opioids in an adolescence is by having their wisdom teeth taken out. And uh, many stories come out of getting wisdom teeth taken out and leaving with a prescription of 60 Percocet for pain because the physicians don't want uh, a negative Facebook review to pop up and say, wow, you know, I had this procedure and I hurt terribly. The doctor didn't take care of my pain. So instead, there's an overprescribing that goes on. And, and then that overprescribing leads to an introduction to maybe a genetically susceptible individual uh, in a challenging metabolic time of their life. And, and hits a reward center that that person has not experienced for a very long time, maybe ever. And, and now you've developed a neurologic reward pattern that goes on. 
and takes those individuals down the path into addiction, which is you know really a, a, a depend level of either physical or psychological dependence upon a substance thing or activity. And stress is absolutely one of those additional predisposing factors that takes people that amplifies pain um, and makes individuals more susceptible to going down the addiction pathway. I think it's really important to always, when we have an individual that has stress or, and, uh, to, or experience pain, to have in the back of their mind, how am I going to be proactive with preventing this individual from spiraling down the pathway of addiction? Uh, you know, so how do we not expose people to unneedless uh, narcotics, benzodiazepines, uh, stimulants, um, or or even lifestyle behaviors <laughs> such as uh, the overuse of social media and, and refreshing your page. You know, there's many different components to uh, what we can become addicted to, uh, and that can impact the quality of our life. So, uh, it's thinking as on the big picture, both uh, uh, upstream and and recognizing both the upstream causes and the downstream problems that can occur from not addressing those problems that gives us a great opportunity in which we actually, I, did a, I think, a great job of comprehensively addressing uh, in a survey m- method uh, to look at how can we both intervene and improve these challenges of pain, stress, and addiction uh, in individual patients, and then ask those bigger questions. How do we address this at large? There's a lot of policy issues that go together with uh, pain, stress, and addiction. This is, uh, these are challenges that are not as isolated to an individual, uh, but rather really emphasize the power of the community uh, of that individual in the eventual success or, or uh, ongoing problem for that individual. As part of your presentation, you talked about the landscape of uh, pain, stress, and especially addiction. And you just touched on opioids a little bit. And we know that um, that the World Health Organization has uh, you know, dubbed stress uh, epidemic of the 21st century, and seven out of 10 Americans are regularly experiencing um, psychological stress. And we've seen the opioid numbers that are out there on it. You in addition to sort of painting a picture of the landscape, we've, which we've talked about in a few interviews uh, leading up in this sort of series on addiction and pain and stress, um, in your presentation, you also talked about the impact of certain things on other areas of the body. And so one of those are opioid and how they affect the gut-brain interaction, which can lead to a lot of other health impact in the body. Can you chat a little bit about that? How do opioids affect the gut-brain interaction. Oh, you bet. You, I, one of the, if anybody's taken an opioid, you have a pretty immediate understanding of just how they affect the gut in one aspect and that they, opioids cause constipation. And, um, <laughs> you know, you don't have to hang around too many elderly folks to recognize that, you know, being regular is, you know, next to godliness. Right, you know, that's the first question you ask. Are you, hey, are you, are you regular? <laughs> and big topic of conversation, and, and there, and that's there's a lot of wisdom behind that because the importance of a good transit time is is 
easily recognized in the population um, because once you have uh, a stagnation of inflammatory bacteria in the bowel, it leads to an upregulation of inflammation uh, that then we know actually uh, worsens the mortality of Crohn's disease in you know, narcotics, uh, increase complications with diverticular disease. Um, and this l- slow transit time leads to uh, more uh, cytokine release, more inflammatory signaling, and possibly more bacteria byproducts entering into the vagal nerve and transporting directly up to the brain uh, and affecting conditions such as Parkinson's. So, you know, we, every interaction, I think when we use a controlling substance as opposed to positively influencing the body, there's always blowback. You know, the body as a system abhors being controlled and abhors being restrained. And, and it's always going to uh, push back in oftentimes unrecognized ways. So this gut-brain interaction changes uh, of opioids also changes the activation of something called TLRs or toll-like receptors. Uh, and that increases the leakiness of the gut and also increases the amount of bacteria then that translocate across the epithelial of the GI tract. So here you have a process of, you have a slow bowel, you have a leaky bowel, you have the upregulation of the effects of inflammation of that leaky bowel. And we now know that this impaired intestinal permeability is a gateway to all types of autoimmune disease, uh, body-wide inflammatory conditions, uh, and uh, and I think we will find all-cause mortality. Um, but And the challenge is that opioids, as you become dependent upon them uh, in central effects, meaning you know the, the euphoria starts to go down and the pain-relieving effects of them go down over the course of time, as long as you keep, you know, and you have to keep taking more and more and more of them, the slowing of the bowel does not uh, tend to become less over the course of time. So you get more and more bowel problems the longer you use opioids. Very challenging problem. You know, when it comes to substance abuse, for a long time, it was thought of as like a moral failing. And I think that some of that is still in the, in society that's out there, that people who become addicted to substances have a moral failing. They don't have a strong heart, a strong will, and that's Mm -hmm. how they ended up in that uh, situation. But now we're really understanding that this is more about uh, addiction being a chronic uh, disease. Uh, So how does functional medicine and the functional medicine approach Think about that and why is it a great way to address the complex chronic conditions like substance use disorders and um, understanding that it's not a moral failing? Mm, That's another great question. You know, I I think that the recognizing the severity of addiction uh, as a disease was a very important step in our moving forward to. Uh, enable treatment options for patients. 
uh, one of my own mentors. I cut my teeth in medicine at the Vanderbilt Institute for the Treatment of Addiction. I was uh, mentored by Dr. Andy Spickard, who was one of the greats of early addiction medicine. And, and he uh, recognized that if you don't name the condition, if you don't call it out for what it is, it's, it's hard to start addressing it. It's hard to take it seriously. So in one hand, you absolutely have to name addiction for being a disease and being a, a severe problem. Um, and then diagnosis should never be the end of the process, but rather the beginning of the process. So have a diagnosis and say, well, that's, that's very important understanding. And now how did this come to be? How do we then step back and start to understand what were the unique constellation of causes that led this person to this end severe dysfunctional state in their life? And, and two of the main pathways that we've already mentioned that uh, cause people to come to an addictive state are the, 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 the end result of trying to solve their problems of pain and stress via the use of powerful medications uh, or even diverted medications. And so um, recognizing that we have this opportunity to to ask, well, well, then what did what did cause that pain? What is behind that stress? What are the um, you know going all the way back to you know what type of genetic uh, interplay is there? And there is some of that, and a very interesting, uh, uh, very interesting interplay. But but what were their early childhood experiences? How did they come to be um, upregulated with regard to their stress? How did they, and then when were they last well, which is one of the most important questions that we ask in all of systems and functional medicine, you know, uh, when were you last really well? And then what happened? And, and diving into this and recognizing that um, our way of organizing information in functional medicine, which is to use a tool called the matrix, uh, gives us insight into the understanding the multiple causations of pain, the multiple causations of stress. And so often, it is the fundamental lifestyle factors in our life, uh, getting adequate and restorative sleep, having a robust nutrition and hydration, adequate movement and exercise, uh, the transformational experience around stress, uh, hearty relationships that you know support us and give us meaning and purpose in life and and ultimately a uh, a spiritual and mind body understanding that we have meaning and purpose in life and there is a reason for us to move forward um, all of these factors together along with their then downstream core physiologic abnormalities of impaired immune function uh, mitochondrial disruption toxic exposure hormone and neurotransmitter imbalance, structural injury, and gastrointestinal dysfunction. Um, all of this together is what matters. Um, and, and this is this opportunity when we start to engage uh, from a systems medicine standpoint to see people 
as these beautifully complex creations that they are, self-healing uh, and uh, remarkably adaptive, uh, and, and this opportunity to understand and then walk alongside in a way that enables them to become a more full and complete version of themselves. A big part of the mission of this podcast is talking with experts like yourself who uh, do sometimes deal with people who have full-blown diseases or are dealing with full-blown pain or stress or addiction, but maybe somebody who's listening today is not dealing with those things. And in the area of functional medicine, what I see it being really amazing at is really looking for those root components that even if you're not dealing with severe or uh, moderate stress levels or uh, pain or addiction, um, if there are certain underlining root factors that bubble up altogether, one day drip, 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 the glass can overflow. And now you're all of a sudden dealing with this thing. You know, they're in this range of subclinical. So I'd love to take some of those areas that you touched upon and talk about how those items can be some of the factors that can lead to ultimately a full-blown issue. So you've mentioned a few of them. I want to talk about the first one, which is trauma and early life trauma and uh, the effects on brain development. So if somebody has gone through early life trauma, and we've talked about this before in the past podcast and the ACEs study, how can that affect their likelihood for one of these uh, three categories of stress, pain, or addiction? Uh, Well, um, I love the fact that we're being more aware all the time of the effect of early life trauma. And and I think sometimes people can feel very trapped when they understand this. They're going like, oh, my parents screwed me. What's going on here? <laughs> you know, oh no, I didn't have anything to do. I'm, there's nothing I can do. And first of all, I want to say before I make my comments, I, I, no, absolutely. Uh, the brain is plastic. We have remarkable ability to change. Uh, and so let me talk a little bit about some of those changes that happen with stress. Um, we, we know through animal studies that through early life stress, you get a hypermethylation of the uh, glucocorticoid receptor uh, genes in the hippocampus. Now, <laughs> what that means in English is that we have a hard time turning off our stress signals. Now, this is a really useful thing. You know, back in the day, uh, the, the barbarians were chronically at the gates. Uh, it were the it was the individuals that uh, were became hyper vigilant to stress that would go and hide at the first sign of danger. And guess what? They got to pass on their genes. So this is a really useful uh, thing long term for the survival of our species. However, it really uh, causes us to have an impaired relationship with our uh, stress hormone regulation system. And, and I'll say, Drew, you know, I uh, have been doing neurofeedback in our practice for about 12 years, probably one of the first functional doctors to start to integrate what I call soup and spark, you know, the biochemistry of the body and the electrophysiology of the body. And uh, it's absolutely remarkable to do brain maps on people where you put an EEG cap on their head and can measure the electrical activity of the brain uh, and then feed that through a computer system to three-dimensionally analyze where is that electricity coming from and compare it with uh, normative databases of, of populations that are relatively healthy and say, 
wow, are there common patterns that are here? And what we see in these individuals who have had a lot of early life trauma is a, a lot of extra beta wave activity in the parietal um, regions of their brain, basically um, a, a brain wave pattern that is has busy brain, constantly and chronically always turned on. Um, and a lot of this effect is in an area we call the um, default mode network. This default network is actually a region of our brain. It spreads around our brain in this beautiful lattice-like structure that holds our sense of self. This part of the brain is always asking the questions, who am I, where am I, and how am I? And a person who is hypervigilant, who experiences more stress than the average individual, um, is, is asking that question a lot more often, has electrical instability in those regions of the brain. And um, so there are many ways to start improving this. Certain mindfulness meditation will help, uh, counseling, EMDR, uh, but also neurofeedback is what we found to be very useful. Putting a cap back on people's heads and then watching their brain waves uh, in a way that we can catch their brain doing the right thing. And when their brain waves are doing the right thing, we give them a reward. And because neurons that fire together, wire together, the more often they do that reward, the more often that the, the more their brain starts to actually learn a new neurologic uh, flow and pattern. And, and we see then the symptoms of stress start to come down. So I, I think what's important to recognize that our set point, how we are experiencing life today there are reasons for that. There are reasons that have to do with our belief systems and our social structures and our biology. But it can also be that we're electrically wired in a certain way that may not be as useful or it may not be allowing the fullest expression of ourselves possible. And there's so many things that can be done with that. Um, the cool thing about the brain is that it's always changing. You know, life is neurofeedback. You know, what we choose to do in our life uh, makes a dramatic difference and we can, uh, we can rewire ourselves. But only upon recognizing our problem and being able to distance ourselves, you know, distance ourselves from our brain to our soul, right? So to not blame ourselves, our very essence for the problem, but rather, you know, put some responsibility on this organ that isn't working as effectively as it should. Um, man, that gives some great opportunity and a, and a new perspective and up to, to live a, a life of more maximum wellness. Just like you talked about trauma, I want to talk about a few other categories that are all things that people listening who are not dealing with these issues can pay attention to. So let's go to the next one so that they can prevent these items from happening in the future, uh, in addition to just living a better, happy, more fulfilled, healthy life. So let's talk about the category of nutritional uh, deficiencies. You know, many people are used to going to their uh, regular uh, doctor and getting back uh, a, a blood panel, which has some nutrients inside of there, maybe like iron and vitamin D and a couple other things, but it's not very complete. And then the doctor says, okay, great. There's no, you know, you're totally fine. In addition to everything else, you know, you're, you're good to go. But a big part of functional medicine is looking a little bit deeper on the hood and using advanced diagnostics to really get the full spectrum. So 
two-part question. Um, what role do nutritional deficiencies, can they play in the context of stress, pain, and addiction? And how do you work with your patients to help dig into that and find out if there truly are deficiencies that need to be addressed? Wow, that's really good question. And do you have another five podcasts so we can cover it fully? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think let's take an example. Uh, and certainly, you know, nutrition, the way we actually bring raw materials into our body and the way those raw materials that can then be used and utilized, um, it obviously has an effect. You know, we, we, are, you know, we are what we eat has eaten. You know, the quality of our food absolutely has a strong influence on the quality of our body's ability to heal and repair in the big picture. Um, when I do a lot of talk, I speak a lot on brain health and brain nutrition. Um, and uh, I, I focus on uh, P's, 3's, B's, MAG, and D. So that's a little shortcut term to help clinicians recognize the big picture challenges. Because when we look at pain and stress and addiction, we're really understanding these as brain conditions. Certainly, there are societal impacts. Absolutely, there are impacts of environment. But the way that these express themselves through the course of our life is through the functioning of our brain, our ability to overcome them, our sensitivity to experiencing them, all has to do with the brain. And so peas are phytonutrients, uh, brightly colored fruits and vegetables, um, turn off many of our inflammatory cascades and turn on our body's ability to detoxify and decrease oxidative stress, which are some of the main ways neurons have injury. Um, uh, threes would be omega-3 fatty acids. I think that checking a omega-3 fatty acid level uh, it should be a vital sign in most practices because uh, of the number of impacts that adequacy in this domain has on adequate brain health and function. Um, Bs, multiple B vitamin deficiencies, such as folate deficiencies, uh, have uh, an impact on our neurotransmitter production uh, and also have an impact on our body's ability to deal with stress. Um, Magnesium uh, is a nutrient that's gone down in our diet tremendously with our agricultural methods of increasing fertilization uh, and the increased leaching of micronutrients out of the soil, along with our decreased intake of vegetables, fruits, and lean meats that contain a dramatic amount of, of magnesium. Piece um, between mag and D and vitamin D. Uh, you know, we get that through sunlight. Sunlight is remarkably de-stressing, uh, and sunlight itself turns on uh, the production of pro-opiomelanocortin, which is this really cool molecule um, that can get converted into the raw materials to make uh, the signals to stress hormones, but also melatonin or melanin, so that the you get dark in your skin, but also the natural endorphins and enkephalins that uh, directly decrease pain. So I think some, as a consequence of us living in fluorescent caves, you know, is part of the reason we feel more stressed and uh, uncomfortable. 
So, you know, so absolutely, you know, doing a comprehensive assessment, first of all, through a really good history, listening carefully uh, to what is that patient's lifestyle? What do they chronically eat? What do they chronically not eat? And then understanding how well they digest and can assimilate those nutrients um, is a is an essential part of moving forward in promoting brain health, so that one can you know, address the causation of pain, uh, so that one can decrease the effect of stress, and then the subsequent problem of addiction, and the then the laboratory evaluation of those problems should be you know customized towards various individuals. Um, we have, I think we have over 30 specialty labs from across the world uh, that we use at our clinic. So there's not any one magic lab that is going to give you all of the answers, uh, but instead um, trying to use utilize your resources well to ask the best questions possible and support your body through a very robust whole foods diet, uh, very strong in the Mediterranean plant uh, materials, and then use targeted amino or targeted nutritional supplementation, you know, to augment that diet. That's really nutritional supplements uh, that are not, uh, you know, you know, listen, nutritional supplements as they get ragged on in the, uh, the the press oftentimes are really the things like weightlifters would use and uh, like lots of stimulants and muscle bulking agents and things that are meant to jack you up. That's where all the side effects come from when people quote side effects in nutritional supplementation. Most nutritional supplements are concentrated foods, very low side effect profile, very high safety profile of those types of compounds and very reasonable for their use in targeted situations. I want to touch on a couple more categories. Let's talk about environmental factors or specifically POPs and toxins in the environment and our exposure to them. How can those things and in different forms increase our likelihood for uh, more severe pain or, or stress or even addiction in our life? Where's the interplay uh, with those items and our health in yeah. stress, pain, and addiction. Wow. That's not a, how many times do you think that question has ever been asked? I mean, really you, the, this idea of, you know, that, wow, how could our environment actually play a part in our susceptibility to addiction? Um, can I get pretty nerdy on you here? Let's Drew? do it. I think the people who okay. are listening here, they, <laughs> they want to go deep. Okay, well, so, you know, I, I lead the energy module for the certification for Institute for Functional Medicine. Uh, and my main, my main teaching area is mitochondrial function. And uh, I love mitochondria. I love teaching about it, learning about it, intervening, assessing people for mitochondrial challenges. And, and really to understand this, this dramatic impact of the toxins of our world on addiction, one has to go to the mitochondria to start understanding. And mitochondria are really cool. I think of it like uh, the lava inside a lava lamp inside our cells. Our mitochondria are these little powerhouses of the cell. And when we see them on a diagram, we see nice little kind of an oval shape with little um, cristae inside. Um, 
and they look very discreet. But what's happening every moment of every moment of life is these mitochondria are fusing together and then splitting apart in fission and fusing and fizzing. <laughs> and, and this, this process, uh, is enabling a recycling of the damaged molecules of these internal combustion engines of the cell. And as the, the, the generated molecules get pulled off to one side, uh, the, the, the cellular machinery takes place where DRP1 will activate and cause the, the mitochondria to get pinched in half and the damaged part to wander off and actually get digested by the cell um, so that the, you're left with this renewed uh, component of the mitochondria, which then goes and merges with other renewed subcomponents of mitochondria and everything gets healthier. But so many, but when you are exposed to cellular stressors that damage the mitochondria, especially the drugs of abuse, you cause a dysfunctional mitochondrial fission. Those mitochondria start to fragment and become small. And when they're small, they don't produce as much energy, number one. And they also can't repair. They start to become more degenerated. Their membranes which should be like a battery, be very efficient with a different charge from the inside versus the outside. Those membranes become leaky and it, you can't produce as much power from the same amount of metabolism. So you have hyper-fissioned uh, mitochondria. If you get exposed to methamphetamines, cocaine, ethanol, rotenone, rotenone's a, you know, a, uh, a herbicide or an insecticide, um, uh, any of the persistent organic pollutants, uh, compounds that are organophosphates, organochlorines, sedentary lifestyle, ischemia, and even amyloid beta peptide, right? One of the, the molecules we kind of blame on, we blame Alzheimer's on, uh, that has creates this mitochondrial fission, tiny dysfunctional mitochondria. And who cares about that, right? Why am I talking about it? Well, it turns out that if you come off of those medications and you detoxify, um, your mitochondria start to start to merge again. They start to fuse again and they start to get a little healthier. When you get re-exposed to any of these compounds in a small amount, you dramatically turn on the body's machinery for fission again. And fission, it turns out, changes your neurochemistry up in the brain, uh, an area called the nucleus accumbens, these medium spiny neurons that are there to positively reinforce all behavior. Um, they get affected by this the mitochondrial fission. So when mitochondrial fission starts, it actually creates drug in drug seeking behaviors. So we we always want to kind of talk about dopamine when it comes to how we are incentivized to have any behavior. That's kind of our reward molecule in the brain. And the, the, these dopamine neurons are controlled by the way their mitochondria are behaving. And so long-term exposure to persistent organic pollutants, 
uh, and these drugs of abuse themselves, benzodiazepines, you know, opioids, methamphetamines, methamphetamines, you know, that's Adderall, right? So <laughs> these are, these are the stimulants, uh, of the world and even poor quality diets such as glucose and palmitate as a uh, unfavorable fatty acid all of those contribute to mitochondrial fission and then contribute to these dopaminergic neurons in the nucleus accumbens to send a message of drug seeking behaviors this is this cascade effect so the uh, you know where somebody has been abstinent from alcohol for a long period of time and then somebody hands them one cigarette and they smoke a cigarette and now there's this feed forward uh cycle of of uh, addictive behaviors that start to cascade forward um it's just very interesting when we start to think about how does our body regulate this this impaired uh, this impaired drug seeking or behavior pattern, it goes back to mitochondria. So that aside, so that's the toxin. I got to tell you the positive side, because there's all kinds of things that induce fusion. Yes, please. Healthier, right. And, and those are the things that we all know are healthy for us, right? Exercise. Um, you know, exercise very dramatically affects, uh, induces mitochondrial fusion. So does fasting and caloric restriction, even cold exposure. But guess what? What did I mention earlier? Omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fatty acids are actually very helpful in this domain. Um, so are sirtuin activation. This would be like red wine uh, or the, uh, you know, talk about red wine as a, as a benefit, <laughs> you know, but the, you, you, because you're not wanting the alcohol as a trigger, then using uh, resveratrol, uh, as a nutritional supplement, uh, can help induce sirtuins, uh, and, uh, also melatonin, melatonin induces mitochondrial fusion. So getting a good night's sleep, having a good rhythmicity to your evening, being in bed, so you get maximum number of hours of sleep before midnight, very important. And, and even things like IV and nicotinic adenosine dinucleotide, IV NAD, uh, have been really powerful in turning off these signals of, of addiction, decreasing cravings remarkably. So it's really, you know, uh, we haven't seen much effect from the oral versions of those, but IV NAD has been remarkable in cases of, that are really trying to seek to turn their life around uh, from a craving standpoint. So it's this balance, right? You asked about toxins, but I had to go to mitochondria and recognize all these toxins irritate mitochondria and change their fusion-fission balance. And then we come back into uh, all these compounds that can you, 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 our lifestyle behaviors and compounds that actually can improve health. And, and yeah, again, give me another three days. There's so much more I'd like to teach about this. So <laughs> it's so fascinating. It's a, and thank you for going into detail because again, I think our listeners aren't afraid of that. And there's this deep yearning to want to understand the interplay of it all. And the more we dig in, the more that there is this interplay. So that was fascinating about mitochondria and the connections that uh, happened there. There's yeah. another nutrient that you mentioned earlier, and it's not something you uh, ingest uh, directly through your mouth and your digestive system, but it's just as much of a nutrient that's there. And that's 
community and our community factors and our friendships and the people that we surround ourselves with and how that can either increase or decrease loneliness. And we know that people who experience loneliness have higher levels of uh, stress akin to smoking, you know, uh, up to like five cigarettes a day and chronic loneliness is some of the research that I've seen out there. So how do you think about community and sociogenomics as a physician who's working with uh, patients who are on the spectrum of pain, stress, and addiction? And what do you tell them is the importance of community and relationships when it comes to their health? Oh man, you know I think we can we can understand addiction as really a disease of disconnectedness, and and uh, you know there's some interesting research that was done by Dr. Bruce Alexander, uh, some data around something called Rat Park, and they for a long time this this way of looking at community, a you know, way of looking at addiction, had everything to do with. Um, you know, it's the drug effect, right? You put rats in a cage and you, you give them cocaine and they drink themselves to oblivion. Uh, and they don't want to drink anything else. And there's been a whole bunch of these studies done uh, that certainly if you put rats in a, in a small, dark metal cage, uh, they will consume uh, vast amounts of opioids or cocaine in preference to eating or drinking and even, you know, self-administer to death. Well, Dr. Alexander said, well, this is really bizarre. We're putting these poor rats in these isolated environments. What happens if we instead put them into rat park? So they made this beautiful, happy home and playground for groups of rats. They put beautiful, fragrant cedar on the floor and put about 16 to 20 rats into both sexes in there so they could mate, they could play. They had a whole bunch of of, of cans and uh, exercise items so that they could express themselves and, and hide. And, uh, and it really had a lot more square footage than they would have in a chair. And they did experiments on the rats looking at, was there more consumption uh, of these opioids uh, in an area of confinement or, or as compared to this more robust community and, and they would state that in almost every experiment, the rats in solitary confinement consumed more drugs uh, by just about every measure they could devise. And, and not just a little more, but a lot more. Now, I think there's a, there's a lot to this research. Um, and, uh, and certainly there are things to learn. Um, I think that you can replicate these studies in, uh, there's a lot of challenge in replication of these studies. Uh, and, but, if we look at and so there's some critique of is this all are the are the effects as much as Dr. Alexander said they were? I'm not going to get into that, but you know, I would say intuitively we can see and our human data strongly supports that community is an amazing vaccination against uh, a dysfunctional relationship with pain, and a it helps us to cope with stress. And it's a very positive factor in recovering from addiction. Look at the success of AA. Um, you know, the 12-step program uh, is, a, is a mental method, but it's also 
going to meetings. What is the number one admonition? Go to your meetings, be in community. And, and so if it works on the downstream manifestation of disease, in, such as AA and support meetings, it absolutely works upstream of that. So we should be thinking proactively, how do we create the most wholesome communities possible um, for these particular factors? And, and actually have that as an intervention in our medical armamentarium, you know, asking questions, how can you increase the meaning and depth and regularity of your wholesome connections? Um, where can you be a contributor? How can you engage in a level that brings meaning and purpose to your life and the lives of others? Sometimes all it takes is asking a question in a clinical scenario. And the solutions that come up in people's minds are absolutely incredible. Uh, I have a group of patients now that get together regularly for walks in the park instead of you know, meeting at a local cafe or a local bar. So they're getting exercise, natural light, time in nature, community, um, uh, all in one fell swoop. And uh, that has it be, it's remarkable the effect that that has on their overall well-being uh, and scores of functioning. I want to take a little pivot from these root causes and some of the great information that you're sharing and come back to your story. You know, when I read your bio uh, that your team provided us with, I saw something you know interesting uh, that many uh, practitioners who have, are in this field of functional systems, integrative medicine uh, experience is that uh, it was written in your bio says, after years of turbulent reflection. And you went through this period of time in your life where you were trained as a physician, you're at Vanderbilt and then the Mayo Clinic where you did your uh, residency. And what questions were you asking yourself that ultimately led you to the community of functional medicine, this way of, of thinking. And uh, take us back to that time in life and how you got into this world of systems-based medicine. Oh, well, yeah. Turbulence was actually uh, kind of an epiphany of a word, and actually. <laughs> because, you know, it, it started out uh, very much, I recognized that. I ran into a couple of experiences where I saw patients die at the hands of incredibly brilliant, caring subspecialists that actually forgot about the patient in their drive to have excellent diagnosis and treatment of one particular organ. So the patient actually expired from something else. And that really drove me to, towards being a generalist. I was kind of going down the MD PhD route and I thought, no, I'm, I'm definitely going to be a generalist here. I want to I want to always see the person. I think Sir William Osler was, you know, really the you know, our patron saint of modern medicine. You know, said it was always more important to know the patient that has the disease than the disease the patient has, and, uh, and I, I took that to heart. And then I also started the evidence-based medicine club at at Mayo Clinic when I was there as a resident. And this was a it was just this idea of that physicians looking at the primary literature themselves was a new idea. You know, remember the internet had just kind of come forth and all of a sudden we had access to data that was 
we usually had to go through Indicus Medicus and go into the bowels of some medical library and do, you know, photocopies and, and find the expert that would know the answer. You know, all of that was the way it was. And I was in that transitional point where we got to see new data. And so we started this process and, and, and we looked at three articles a month for six months. And after 18 articles, I was horribly disappointed at how little data we actually had to do what we were doing and how much evidence we had for harm. You know, that, that the Institute of Medicine, you know, would quote that doctors and properly prescribed medications are the third leading cause of death in the United States. So I was confronted with this idea like, wow, we are actually the medical world is responsible for some substantial harm. And yet I see people getting better. And that was this paradox. And so it created the shift in my mind that we, instead of, I didn't go to medical school really to diagnose and treat disease. I didn't go to, to, di- to diagnose and suppress the symptoms of disease. I went to medical school to figure out what creates health. What creates health became an absolute mind-blowing change in my mind. And I have looked at everything after that point. And it has led to a, a fierce curiosity about what makes a human being tick at their fundamental. How can we understand who a person is from the broadest objective perspective possible and and customize uh, interventions in ways that are the safest possible first, making sure that we exhaust all safe options before we go on to things that have higher potential for harm. And, uh, and that's led me down uh, these, in, these very interesting paths. And, and I had a, an epiphany, you know, my exposure, uh, what helped me understand systems medicine was my first meeting with Dr. Jeffrey Bland, who's the founder of the Institute for Functional Medicine. And he had a, a conference of, at a food as medicine conference. And I remember listening to him for an hour and a half and literally seeing like the heavens open up. I mean, light shone on me. I was like, I was like, oh, because it was about the system. It was about thinking and linking. It was putting things together. It was asking better questions. It was instead of uh, making up these uh, kind of synthetic boxes that we call diagnoses and diseases, Instead, being more honest about the the expression of health and illness in the natural world, to me, systems medicine gives us the best way of looking at reality because it gives a, we can be more honest about the complexity that exists, and we can find what are the pivot points that help us understand this complexity. Where can we intervene most elegantly? Uh, for any one individual person. And um, for a person who loves to solve puzzles, who loves to ask questions, uh, this was, it was I, I can't tell you how joyful the practice of medicine is for me. And, and I really think this is where um, I'm called to also teach. That's why I love teaching, taught thousands of physicians, uh, because the excitement of being a really useful uh, generalist, a super generalist in people's lives that can be the hub of helping people understand, you know, what is their contribution in this world and what are the barriers to expressing the highest versions of themselves is the greatest joy 
and the greatest opportunity I could ever imagine experiencing in a professional world. So, uh, yeah, it was, it has been turbulent though, because it bucks the system. The system is a, that the number you need to remember is 20, (laughs) 20% of our GDP goes to healthcare. And that means that 20%, that's more than the GDP of Germany. And that's a lot of money to shuffle around. So anything that upsets the status quo has a pushback. And, and that, we have to be honest about that, that if we want to make changes, there's a lot of status quo to deal with that may or may not be mindful of the effect of that status quo in the world. And, and then to be understanding, I think people are good I mean, I love my physician colleagues. I love specialists. I don't believe that any one person has the answer. I love getting to be that hub for multiple subspecialists and researchers in patients' care. But I do think that uh, we have become blinded uh, by our medical billing system and economic structure to not focus on the person at the center, but rather to uh, be shaped rather subconsciously to act a certain way in our clinical behavior uh, so that the uh, economic machine continues to move forward. So there, that's the turbulent part of wanting to definitely be part of this remarkable community of healers and healthcare providers of all shapes and sizes and influences. Uh, and then also to have this deep conviction, creating health, creating health is where it's at. And that's, and that made, hey, this is a natural place for me to say we're actually starting a podcast that's actually creating health and uh, creating health with Dr. David Hasse. And so there's going to be some time before that launches. And uh, maybe by the time this is up and running, that will actually occur. But uh, I, I had to be honest about that and, uh, and start to speak that truth uh, to the level that uh, I can be of, of help in the world. So no, it's so important. And you're doing an incredible job about it. I saw, uh, a post that a, a friend shared with me today earlier in the day on Instagram. And uh, the quote said, you will never influence the world by trying to be like it. And when I think of you and the other practitioners that are out there that are influencing health for the better, helping people get to the root cause of their pain, their addiction, their stress, it's going to upset the system and that's going to get pushed back but it's what's needed. There are so many people that are out there that are in this scenario where they're hurting and there are solutions that are out there. It's not that these solutions need to be developed in a, in a laboratory or through some prescription, although there may be some solutions that come out of that as well too. These are solutions that are there that are practical, that are available to us to help us get to the root of it. Uh, When I saw your presentation, um, the feeling that I was left with it, after you were done was I felt very hopeful, especially in the space of pain, stress, and addiction. And I felt hopeful because um, there are many people who uh, pain, stress, and addiction is a spectrum. And especially towards the middle and the severe end of the spectrum, um, I think that we need to bring our worlds together of acute interventions of Western medicine, if people want to classify it that way, of really coming in and helping put out the fire. You know, when somebody's dealing with severe addiction, I think it was uh, 
Dr. John uh, Kelly from uh, uh, Mass General and the project that he has there with the recovery project and the database who presented at IFM, he said, you know, when somebody's really dealing with severe addiction, the house is on fire. The first step is we need to put that fire out and there are different ways of doing that. And then we have to then begin the rebuilding process. And as part of that rebuilding process or that prevention process of like what is more likely to make a house become inflamed, that's where I really see functional medicine playing a role. And I felt like you brought those worlds really well together. So um, for anybody who's listening, who has a family member, I'm just going to stick to addiction for a second, who's dealing with uh, addiction and could be going in and out of it. um, How can a functional medicine doctor be part of their team in addition to all the additional components that might be there, psychiatric uh, uh, help, AA, um, or or other factors that are being uh, brought into it. How do you think of somebody assembling a team or a family assembling a team with uh, a functional medicine doctor being part of that? Yeah, another great question. And I'm I'm really, um, I do believe this is, all of healthcare should be a team approach. And there's really no place, I think, that has actually done this better than well-done addiction medicine in the present sphere. So this model already exists of a multimodal treatment approach. Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned this difference between acute, you know, from putting out the fire and, and then keeping the fire from reigniting, the smoldering that I always think is going on. And, and, and I'd say that there's a four, you know, there's one is first crisis management where we want to stabilize individuals. Uh, and that's where a lot of this acute care has been focused. And then um, we come to this thrust of how do we transition from crisis management and stabilization into self-management? And I would say that everything that we do in uh, functional and systems medicine, we recognize that health is created from the inside out. Our paradigm is always that it's it's not what some highly trained, intelligent doctor does to or for you that actually fixes you. But it's these remarkable steps that you take for yourself that create health from the inside out. That's our paradigm. And, and I think that number one, the utility of involving a functional practitioner in that team is this clear mindset of going towards self-management by better understanding the person from a biopsychosocial, uh, a core fundamental lifestyle, and a physiologic uh, hub disruption model. Um, we Our model in functional medicine, we call it go to it, where we gather data, uh, we organize uh, this data in a in both a timeline and a matrix. We we re-explain or we tell that story back to the patient to help give them context of how did they get where they were, helping make new meaning around their ex- life experience. Um, and then we order our priorities. Say, well, we can't do everything at once. Let's let's focus on what has the greatest impact for help first. We initiate treatment. And then we track outcomes and we deepen the connections that go on. And and I think that's really the role of the functional practitioner in these environments. Um, We need to um, recognize that that, uh, lifestyle um, 
and breaking through the psychologic barriers that go on with addiction um, can be augmented by helping people re-understand their story as something that's rational, that they are not broken. I love the fact you started the podcast by saying, you know what, it's the Broken Brain Podcast, but but your brain's not broken. <laughs> because I, I actually had pushed back to the title of the podcast. And, and you hear that, it's like the first thing you said, amen, brother, because it is this, it's this wonderful to recognize that, that health is rational, that we live in a natural world that is complex and that we can seek to understand. And sometimes we will have clear understanding and other times we're going to have to stay in that realm of uncertainty. We will have to maintain course even as we only know something partially. Um, and and I, again, I think a, a well-trained functional or systems medicine practitioner should be able to help hold that space uh, to be comfortable with uncertainty while at the same time helping to bring understanding so that these very difficult life, lifestyle, life change, and system-wide interventions can be successful over the course of time uh, with that individual. I am so thrilled to have watched people completely not just recover from addiction, but to see them become a better version of themselves and incorporate the knowledge uh, and understandings of their period where they were trapped in this spiral of addiction and incorporate that into their life to become wisdom and help and healing for others. Mm. Uh, these are some of the best people in the face of the planet. Uh, many of the problems that bring people to the space of addiction are exactly those characteristics that make for a beautiful human. And uh, we can help release them from their bondage. What, what, an, what an amazing opportunity to help uh, feed forward into the world. Oh, so beautifully said. Dr. Hazzy, thank you for coming on the podcast. You have a few really interesting projects that are out there. You already mentioned the podcast. So once that's out there, or if it is out there, by the time this interview comes there, we'll definitely link to it, uh, the Creating Health with Dr. David Hazzy podcast. You also have a book that I'd love you to mention here, uh, curiosity heals the human. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, curiosity heals the human. It's a you know it's obviously a takeoff on curiosity killing the cat. Uh, but you know what? It, I think one of the most healing forces in all of the world are better questions. How can you ask a different? You ask a different question, you get a different series of answers. And in this book, we dive into some of the most powerful questions that I have asked in my life. The people who want their five steps to a flat tummy kind of a book, this is not that. <laughs> this, is a, this is an exploration of, you know, what does create health? And, and what are some unique things that I've found uh, on my journey to be uniquely helpful for people? So, um, yeah, and you can, um, and if you go to my website, uh, that's uh, uh, drhazi.com. Uh, I'll even send you a condensed version of the book for free. You know, I, I, I want this idea of better questions to start permeating our environment uh, because I think that it is, that is really the gateway to us getting better answers. 
And uh, so, you know, so if you want to find me, I'll, I'm David Hazy MD on Facebook and Twitter, and I'll post some links. Uh, I, I mean, I, I really use Twitter reluctantly because I was told I was, should do that. So, <laughs> but you know, it, it all shows. Uh, it shows what our our, our focus is because I, I I love spending time with patients and diving deep. And uh, uh, my social media world is one of those that it's always very juicy when I post something, but it's often it's not always as frequently as it should. <laughs> well, for what you've posted, we're very grateful, and we're grateful for you being an incredible educator and a heart centered physician in this space who's helping people get towards health and the root causes that prevent them from being there. And it's been an honor and a pleasure to both see your presentation in person. Of course, I've seen you talk other times at the Institute of Functional Medicine Conference and uh, to also have you here on the podcast to educate us on these important topics. Uh, we deeply, deeply appreciate you. Oh, well, Drew, thank you very much for your time. Uh, anything to help move forward this uh, idea that the, we, we can create health. Uh, and that, uh, and you're doing that in this work. So thank you. Absolutely. For all the links that uh, Dr. Hazi mentioned, check out the show notes and we'll check you out next time on the Broken Brain Podcast. Hi everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.